Are you hooked on antidepressants? Do you even need them? Is it a lack of antidepressants that's causing our suffering? And are they causing their own suffering in withdrawal? One in two who try to come off them have significant withdrawal symptoms, half of which are classified as severe. Now I'm going to interview John Reed, who is Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of East London. He has published several research papers on antidepressant medication and also other psychiatric medications. John is chair of the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. John, thank you for joining my podcast. Thank you for having me, Patrick. So, so first, what is the size of the problem? How many people in the UK are on antidepressants? How many prescriptions are there a year? Uh, well, we know that the latest figures show that one in six people last year were prescribed at least one prescription of antidepressants. So that's about 17, 17%. Um, I haven't got the actual number of prescriptions in, in front of me, but that's the percentage of people who who are on them. And when you add in other psychiatric drugs, it comes to one in one in four. And there's um, differentials involved here. So if you're female, you're more likely to be given antidepressants or these other drugs. If you're older, you're more likely to get them. And if you live in deprived areas of, of England, um, which raises the question of what we're actually medicating, of course, whether we're medicating the effects of, of poverty and loneliness and so forth. So um, just, to, just for, for your listeners to, to capture just how huge this epidemic is, this epidemic of what I would call over-prescribing. If, um, if you're a woman over 50 where I live in Ewham in London, which is one of the poorest boroughs in the country, your chances of being on antidepressants is 50%. So every other woman over 50 in my, in my neighbourhood is on antidepressants, and that scares me. No, I mean, it is extraordinary. I was looking up the latest quarter figures, and it was 22 million um, antidepressant prescriptions, so maybe 88 million a year, and you know, with an adult population a little over 50 million. I mean, it's these are really, really big numbers. How many of these yeah. never have gone on them in the first place? I mean, just as a broad general question, I'm sure we'll drill down. Oh, that's 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 impossible to answer with any great level of specificity. But I, what I can say is that. Um, the majority of these prescriptions are for people with mild or moderate depression for which there is no evidence that the drugs are better than placebo. Um, so on that basis, we can say that the majority of people, um, it, it's not an evidence-based uh, thing to do to prescribe them medication. And how many, of them, how many of them literally can't get off them due to the severity of the withdrawal effects when they try well, we, yeah, we can answer that more accurately. In fact, I think you mentioned it earlier. Our surveys, our review of the research literature, which we published three or four years ago, shows that uh, on average, 56% of people will experience withdrawal effects when they try to come off or reduce antidepressants. And of those, when given the opportunity to rate them as mild, to rate the withdrawal effects as mild, moderate or severe, just under half, 46%, rate them as severe. Um, so the, the, we are literally talking about millions of people struggling to get off these 
drugs and the withdrawal effects can last for months and sometimes years, although until recently our national guidelines said it, um, it only lasts a few weeks. And what sort of, I mean, you know, here you are, you're feeling low, mild, moderate depression. Uh, what are the withdrawal effects? I mean, what, you know, when you say severe versus moderate, severe of what? What, what are people actually experiencing when they try to come off these drugs? Okay, it was quite a long, a long list of withdrawal symptoms. There are things like um, increased anxiety, agitation, sleeplessness, flu-like symptoms, um, an unusual one um, is brain zaps. People describe brain zaps, which is a sort of feeling of shooting of electricity across across your head as um, one that's quite surprising, um, but fairly, fairly common. Um, and they're really, it's just, um, I guess for some people, an overwhelming level of agitation and anxiety um, would be the one way to describe it. But there are physical symptoms as well, tinnitus and um, trembling and so forth. Uh, and for, as I say, for some, some people that's relatively mild, but for many these are severe and lasting months. And of course the shocker, which you've really said, is, is we're talking about millions of people. And I don't know, I mean, if, if you had to sort of give a ballpark, I mean, do you think there's you know, a couple of million people in Britain who literally would like to get off, off antidepressants and can't because every time they try, they get these appalling reactions? Oh, at least I would say, yes. I think that's that's a conservative estimate. What would be your estimate? Um, well, I, I, I would rather not try to get too specific there because we don't know how many people are actively trying we 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 know that of the um of the people who are on them as i say we know that uh, half will, will have withdrawal and half of those are severe so if it's um if it's uh 15 million people on them at any one point and it's probably more than that by now then that seven and a half million will have some withdrawal effects and half of those let's conservatively say three million um will be uh, experiencing severe withdrawal effects when they come off. Of course, not everybody's trying to come off at the same time. Mm. It is quite shocking. What I hear a lot is that somebody may have been put on an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. This is a Prozac generation of Xeroxat and, and uh, you know, fluoxetine and Lustral and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and then they're told, no, there's something better now that you must go on, which is this new generation of serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. This is duloxetine and Cymbalta and venlafaxine. And I, you know, when I read the literature, I don't see that these drugs are better. Uh, it looks to me like the withdrawal effects are even worse. But yeah, what's your take on it? Are these drugs better? Are they safer? Why, why have you uh, no, switched? There isn't any evidence that um, different uh, overall types of antidepressants are better or worse. Within, it, within each type, um, the, the, the level of withdrawal effects is largely determined by the half-life. So some will have shorter half-lives than, than others. In other words, they get out of the system at a, at a faster rate. So there, there is a difference between the drugs. 
um, but but not any overall the claim that one type of antidepressant is free from withdrawal effects compared to another type is is not accurate. And do we do we know biologically why people are get getting withdrawal effects? Well, the mechanism. I mean, at, it, at its simplest, any time. See, these what these drugs do is um, artificially interfere with normal brain processes. So it's not true that they're correcting a chemical imbalance. That has been that myth has been completely exposed um, just recently, actually, although we've known for a long time, there's no evidence for that. So they are artificially changing according or causing aberrations in the neurotransmitters. Um, and, and the brain adjusts, tries to adjust to those. So if you if you have an artificial, artificially caused aberration, um, and then the cause of that is withdrawn, you're going to have a major withdrawal effects, what pretty much whatever um, you put into the into your system. So it's not it's not unique to antidepressants. You get the same with antipsychotic drugs, certainly with benzodiazepines, which we've known for 30, 40 years. We've only, only just beginning to get the truth about antidepressants, and nobody yet is talking about antipsychotics. So it's a it's across the board. There's nothing unique about antidepressants. Mm. Now, I've read Dr. David Healy's research that um, reviewed that in placebo-controlled trials, twice as many people think about or commit suicide on the antidepressant arm than the placebo arm. Uh, what's your take on this? Can antidepressants actually make you suicidal or even homicidal? Well, there isn't any question that for some people it increases suicidal thoughts. I mean, even the drug companies acknowledge that um, and and uh, they have a, a clear warning. Um, well, I don't know how clear it is, but there was a written, written warning for the last ooh, 10, 15 years, specifically for adolescents and young adults up to the age of 25, um, which seem to have, we're not sure why, or at least I'm not sure why, um, why that is the case, but they're a particularly high rate of having increased suicidal ideation, especially in the first few weeks of taking the drugs, which is fairly astonishing, really. Um, that would be of concern for any medication, but for a medication that is supposed to make you feel less depressed and less suicidal, the fact that it's increasing suicidal ideation should really be enough for um, professional organisations to really sound the alarm bells. I remember when uh, GSK's uh, Seroxat trial came out saying that antidepressants were safe and effective for teenagers. So do you think this is not true? Um, well, if increasing suicidal ideation means they're not safe, then they're not safe. Um, of course, it doesn't increase suicidal ideation for every teenager or, or young adult, but a significant number, a significant enough number um, that the drug companies are, are putting written warnings in with their with their drugs. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always worry about any artificial interference with adolescents' brains because the brains are still developing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the effect on adults, we, the bottom line is we really don't know, even after 50 years, we don't know the long-term effects of antidepressants or antipsychotics um, on adult brains because the research, which is largely funded by the drug companies, tend not to be interested in that. The vast majority 
our studies are last about eight weeks. Mm. Um, that's that's what you need to do to get past the FDA, um, Food and Drug Administration, or or whatever the regulatory authority is in in your country. Studies lasting eight weeks. So we we prescribe these drugs in their millions without without having any idea what the long term effects are on adult brains. And then you come to adolescent brains that are still developing. And I, I find it scary, the amount of children and adolescents that are, that are now on psychiatric drugs. It's very common uh, that, uh, that studies or the, you know, don't disclose their actual data. And when GSK got fined uh, in the US, part of the court ruling was they had to disclose or make available their drug data. And that led to a reanalysis of their famous Xeroxat trial. Uh, which was published in the British Medical Journal. Uh, this was the trial that said that they were effective and safe for teenagers. And in fact, their very own data showed that they weren't effective and weren't safe. So I'm always suspicious when data from a trial is not freely made available to other researchers. So you mentioned how these drugs get a license. And you know, there is a scale, the Hamilton rating scale of depression, which is really a questionnaire that's used to diagnose, to, you know, depression, mild, moderate, severe. What sort of percentage, you know, change in these questionnaires are necessary uh, to get a license? You mentioned it only needs to be an eight week trial. Well, um, it needs to be. According to sort of normal criteria of the regulatory authorities, you need to demonstrate a statistically significant difference between the placebo group and the drug group. But there's a problem with that because on the Hamilton depression scale, you can get us if you've got a large enough sample, you can get a statistically significant difference of of two points. Say, um, is that like two questions? Pardon? Is that like two questions? Yes, out of, um, I can't remember exactly how many, I think it's 40 or 50. So you can get that, which is statistically significant. But that is not necessarily clinically meaningful. And what clinically meaningful means, there's a clear definition of that, that is can anybody see it or experience it, mm -hmm. uh, that, that level of change? Um, so can the patient experience, can mum experience it, can the nurses see it? And very often these, these small two-point changes are not experienced by anybody in the, in the real world. So they're not meaningful changes. Um, and what, while we're on the what, what studies are made available by drug companies, it's very important for people to understand that up until about 10 years ago, the vast majority of antidepressant studies were buried because you drug companies only need to produce two or three studies that pr prove that they're safe, and effective on the criteria we're just talking about for eight weeks. And they can do as many as they like that find no difference or find safety risks and just throw those away. And they keep going until they find two or three um, that do meet the criteria and, they, and then they submit those. Um, but uh, Professor Irving Kirsch from Harvard Medical School about or 20, or two, long time ago, 2008, got... Um, use the legal requirements to get all of those exposed all the many many studies that have never been published and that's where we that's when we found out that there is no benefit whatsoever 
um, for people on mild, with mild or moderate depression compared to placebo. There's about, there is a small benefit for people right at the top, right at the extreme end of severe depression. Um, so it's about between two and 5% of people who are getting any benefit compared to placebo. But until then, that wasn't known, of course. And, and, and by then, they had become a complete epidemic around the world of antidepressants. And um, it was sort of just the chemical imbalance myth on which they were based was accepted. And they were so commonly prescribed that um, this sort of new information just couldn't couldn't penetrate the, um, the status quo that anybody who feels slightly upset needs to be on antidepressants. And these these trials are double blind placebo controlled trials. So the idea is that the experimenter is blind to whether the patient is on the drug or the placebo, and the and the patient is blind too. But it's very hard, I would have thought to be on antidepressants and actually not notice some changes. So I wonder how blind these really are. And that my understanding is that if the antidepressants lowered the Hamilton rating scale by 65%, the placebos did by 50%. So as you said, it might be the difference between one and two points on a questionnaire. Is there, do you think these studies really are double blind? Are we really, uh, or, or you know, are people just more likely to think when they start to notice something? Oh, I must be on the drug. Um, you're right to be concerned about that aspect of the, the methodology. It's very hard to design a perfect, um, perfectly blinded study, um, especially uh, if people are aware of the adverse effects, because you can tell, you know, what's uh, whether you're getting those adverse effects. Um, or or not, if people have done a bit of reading. So yes, it's not they're not they're not perfect studies. They are, the, to be fair, they are the best we can do. And as I said, they are at one level genuine attempts um, to come up with a, a, a reasonable answer. It's but they are um, the major flaw is that the eight week period, and a second major flaw is that the samples are very, very unrepresentative of depressed people because what they do is rule out anybody who's got anything else going on. Mm -hmm. So you rule out people who've got problems with alcohol or drugs. You rule out people who've got psychosis um, or all sorts of other things. And of course, that you rule all of those people out. I mean, it's very rare for someone to be extremely depressed and have nothing else going on in their life. So it's a very strange group, I'm sorry, unusual group of people that uh, are used in these studies. So that's another major flaw. But you can understand why they do that, because they want to rule out, you know, they, it, 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 it's a, it's a well-meant attempt to have a pure sample, but but the world isn't like that. Um, um, people, and, and there's an irony there, because people get depressed because of all these other things going on in their lives, and then they rule out people who've got these other things going on in their lives and think they've got a, a useful sample. So it's, it's problematic. Yeah, I, I mean, I was looking at one of the big studies that sort of implanted statins for everyone, and they had, a I think, a three-month washout period. So before they started the official trial, um, anyone who wasn't tolerating the drug in the first three months was eliminated and then didn't yeah. join the trial, which then reported yeah. no adverse effects. <laughs> yeah. 
So there's yeah. I actually I met one of the uh, designers of trials for drug companies, so independent of a particular drug company. And they said, we never design it to fail. You know, we know how to make, uh, you know, a drug trial, whether it's to do with the size or eliminating. So we know how to get the license that we need to sell the drug. Of course. Yeah. And, and let's let's be fair about drug companies. That's their job. Mm -hmm. Their job is to maximize profit for their shareholders. And they know how to do that. They do it extraordinarily well. They have massive resources. And but that's their job. So. Uh, yes, uh, uh, it's right that we criticise their methodology and expose it. Yes, it's right that we expose the fact that when people compare the outcome of drug company funded studies versus independently funded studies, there's a clear difference in the likelihood of a product being found to be effective and safe. But that, as I say, that's their job. My beef is with the profession of psychiatry which has not established a proper boundary between itself a medical scientific mm -hmm. discipline and a, a, an set of organizations whose job is entirely different, whose job is to make money for their shareholders. They mm -hmm. have become completely dependent on the drug companies over the last 20, 30 years, especially in America. Not quite so much here in the UK, but um, not, not far behind. And I think that's until we sort that out, um, we're we're we really going to struggle to to come to terms with this this whole situation. Now, GPs and psychiatrists have been guided uh, quite endlessly over the last few years to prescribe less, but the opposite is happening. Why is that? Do you think that's a reflection of this too close relationship? Uh, partly, partly that um, with, with GPs, they do have a a reasonable as an excuse or an explanation. I'll leave your listeners to decide that. Um, but the, but there is a factor there that they literally have ten minutes or twelve minutes to listen to people's stories, the reason they're feeling depressed or anxious, and try and respond in in some way. That's a very tall ask, and and they're also often aren't the, the, the services for them to refer to um, psychotherapy and counseling and other sorts of support services are often not very readily available um, so they do there are some reasons there but I, I think just blaming the professions professionals and the drug companies is part of the picture I think we have to hold ourselves responsible also because we are as, a, as citizens or as a society, we're still going to a medical professional with what aren't medical problems. Um, they are emotional problems in response to life stresses, mostly. Um, but we take them to a doctor and almost expect a diagnosis and a pill. Um, so we are, it's, we're, we're all colluding with the whole thing. And I, I, do, I do hold professionals accountable and drug companies, but we have to take some responsibility as, ourselves as well, especially when it comes to, to our children and the expectation that if our kids are struggling or being a bit naughty at school, then the answer is to get them on some sort of ADHD pill or something. So I'm just saying we have to take our responsibility as well, rather than just point the finger elsewhere. Yeah, so it brings me on to the next question, which is what do you think really is driving depression? Of course, it's going well, to be different for different people. Uh, yes, it's different for different people, but the bottom line makes me sound rather 
rather simple, Patrick. Um, I have this bizarre theory, um, very radical, that depression is caused by depressing things happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I know. It's funny, isn't it? But um, And it's... Uh, What's interesting about that is that the public agrees with that. When you do surveys all over the world, except in the United States, which is, we'll come back to if we've got time, but in 23 countries where surveys have been done about what causes depression or anxiety or even psychosis and schizophrenia, the public are very clear that it is bad things happening. Mm -hmm. It's stress at work, stress at home, poverty, violence, war trauma, divorce, loss, unemployment, all of those things. The public understands that, um, depression is caused by depressing things happening. It's only one profession, and not even all of them, that argues that uh, the opposite, that there's a chemical imbalance with a strong genetic component. And that's the profession that is dependent on the drug companies that are dependent on that model for selling their products. So um, it's, it's obvi- yes, it is different for different people, um, but basically, um, depression is caused by depressing things happening. So the next question is why, do, if two people experience the same depressing thing, does one person become really, really depressed and one just feels a bit sad for a couple of weeks? And that can also be explained by a social environment because it depends how many other things have happened previously to you. So it's an accumulation of stresses and losses um, so that by the time you have the 15th one, that can really push you over the edge into a, in a deep to a deep to a deep pit where if there's somebody else is experiencing that same loss, but but their life has gone great up until then, um, they're not going to experience the same the same um, despair and despondency. So you can explain almost all of it by life life events um, and and circumstances and loss and trauma, and everybody knows that. Now I I mean that's a very sort of social and psychological view of the world, which is in fact exactly where I started my entire career, uh, which has been, you know, 40 years in the world of nutrition. And of course, we look to things like, you know, perhaps winter and low vitamin D levels, uh, the link between lack of seafood, omega-3, blood sugar problems, uh, addicted to stimulants, smoking loads of caffeine, raised homocysteine, lack of B vitamin zinc, and all, and all that factors as possibly contributing. Now, is there a danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as in the psychologists and sociologists focus and on those important social and psychological issues? And if the biological approach, as in you were low in serotonin, you need an antidepressant, is, is discredited in the process, then nutrition, which of course is barely taught, also gets disregarded. I mean, what's your view? I mean, how much did you learn about nutrition and the brain um, in your training or is taught to psychologists or psychiatrists? I do think I do think that's a risk, Patrick. Um, and I just to answer your last point first, nothing. We were taught nothing about nutrition. Um, in our defense, we're not a medical discipline, um, but uh, but still um, part of the problem with our mental health approaches are all sitting in in our own little silos without, uh, and the answer to many things is multidisciplinary. So of course, biology is part of the picture. So I, I need to clarify what I, what I mean by saying it's mostly psych, psychosocial. I and mean, you can find um, brain differences between people who are depressed and not depressed, but those themselves are often caused by 
psychosocial events or to focus more on your area of expertise on on nutritional deficits and 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 so forth i think they can very much be part of the problem and they're they're linked because um for instance uh poverty which is which is the, the, just statistically the best predictor of everything um will will have an effect on the chances of you um having a decent nutritional intake won't mm. it so poverty is part of the picture even when you focus on nutrition and and diet but i i don't doubt that for some people getting their um diet and nutrition and whatever sorted out will be more important than and finding than finding a therapist to talk to um for other people they might need both of those um and for some people nutrition won't be part of the picture at all so yes i ab- absolutely concede that um, those those factors are are important as as well so i was talking to a man who's uh kind of dealing with some fundamental you know life issues driving his depression and uh he's finally got on the list to see a psychotherapist but he won't be on the list unless he takes antidepressants so he's been told unless you are on medication you will not be on the list for counseling is that in this country patrick oh yeah that's in this country yeah okay well that's that is medically negligent Mm -hmm. um and ethically completely unacceptable you you cannot as a professional um withhold treatment because the person is not taking another treatment that you 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 tend to like mm. um that's just i find that i do hear uh anecdotally uh, that sort of story from time to time and it's, it's utterly unacceptable um and should never be allowed allowed to happen um I, we need some studies into this to find out how often this is and to and to root out these professionals that are doing that they need to be struck off i really believe that now I like to collect quotes, sayings. Uh, Two of my favourite in this area, one is poverty is the root of all evil. And uh, the other one is is depression is often anger without enthusiasm. Don't get sad, get mad. I just wondered if you had any um, sayings that you like in this territory. Well, and that that last one is actually, you trace that back to Freud. Freud talked about depression being anger turned inwards. Um, which is a sort of variation of what you what you just said. Um, my one of my favourite things. Well, I, I I think bad things happen and they mess you up. Is is, is the bottom mm-hmm. is the bottom line. Um, and I, I jokingly say, and I, I'm fortunate enough to be asked around the world to give talks on this sort of thing. And I jokingly started saying in the last ten years, it's amazing to me that I've built an entire career about that around essentially that one idea that bad things happen and mess you up. And, and more importantly, it's an idea that everybody knows already. So, so why do I keep getting invited all over the world to speak about that? And that's because the most common reaction I get is, John, we knew all that, but we didn't know. There was so much research behind it to support what we're saying and to prove that the psychiatrists are often wrong. So that's that's the role I've ended up ended up playing. Initially, all I wanted to be was a was a a good old clinical psychologist doing therapy and helping people. But it was, um, I so often ran into an impossible situation where I was working away in therapy and the, and the person was getting so medicated and tranquilized they could barely stay awake in, in therapy or they were being told 
there's no point doing therapy. Your brain is irreversibly, you know, whatever the right word is, and not not okay. Um, so that's that's where I started at. But uh, yeah, if I had a um, favorite saying, it's bad things happen and they mess you up, um, which is is not very um, uh, sophisticated or complicated. Well, I, I, lo I love it. And Professor John Reed, thank you so much for keeping your eye on that ball and your excellent um, research. It's really fantastic. Common sense is not very common. And uh, you're kind of putting the numbers on it all. And we really do have to tackle this massive overprescription um, of antidepressants. So thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Just, just, just before we finish, Patrick, talking of numbers, while we were speaking, I did I checked my figures um, for England prescriptions. So I must get this right. There are 8 million um, prescriptions. So that would, to answer your question, how many are struggling? So 4 million of those will experience um, withdrawal effects and about half of those. So approximately 2 million people will be, um, when they try and come off, will experience severe withdrawal effects. So I just thought it's important to get those numbers right. Thank you so much. Now we're going to be talking to Luke, who was put on antidepressants and had a very hard time getting off them. Now, Luke, how did you get hooked on antidepressants? I was first given antidepressants by my GP in 1990, after I had a bad reaction to a sinus operation. I felt pretty kind of out of it for a few months and Prozac was the wonder drug on the market. Uh, he gave it to me, it didn't seem to make much difference but I was left on it for year after year after year. And when I eventually decided to try and come off, I realized that I'd become totally dependent because I had all these horrible withdrawal symptoms. Now, did your GP help you to get off them? Uh, the doctors at that time, and this was early 2000s, seemed to know almost nothing about how to come off antidepressants. I was taken off much too quickly. And I had to learn the hard way that you need to come off these things very, very slowly. And what happens if you come off too quickly? And how did you eventually achieve, you know, getting clean of these? Um, if you come off too quickly, you enter into quite severe withdrawal, or at least a large percentage of people do. Roughly 50% of people on these drugs will um, encounter withdrawal, 25% of people on the drugs will have it severely. And I was one of the severe ones. And uh, that gave me a whole range of horrendous symptoms from extreme agitation to problems with balance, problems with vision, tinnitus, neuropathy. I mean, it was a, just a whole host of horror and uh, you know, not something you would wish on your worst enemy. And how long did it take you to eventually achieve um, this and did nutrition play any part for you? I spent about 12 months coming off very slowly and even when I came off slowly I was still suffering from severe symptoms and it's taken me years after that to recover uh, completely. This may be partly because I was taken off much too quickly initially um, and certainly my system has become much more sensitive to to all sorts of foods particularly to to um, sugars and and high carbohydrate foods so i'm much more careful with what i eat because i find that 
um, those sorts of sugars can really trigger symptoms. Now, you sued the doctor, is that right? Well, the doctor who who took me off the first drug um, was practicing at the Priory in London. And it was well recognized at that time that you shouldn't come off these drugs quickly. And um, and so he'd actually written a letter in which he'd accepted some responsibility for that. And because my life was turned upside down and I lost my career and my job, um, it was devastating in terms of the financial impact. So, yes, I, I started uh, legal proceedings against him um, and it was a horrendous experience uh, not to be undertaken lightly. Um, but eventually we we settled out of court um, and uh, he paid or his insurers paid about one point two million, uh, of which most, of course, went to the lawyers. And I understand that you've not just, um, you know, been concerned with yourself, but also others. So what have you been doing since to change this terrible state of affairs? So when I realized that what was happening to me was happening to thousands and thousands of others, there is this whole parallel universe of suffering on the internet. People coming together through Facebook groups, through online forums, sharing very similar experiences of terrible withdrawal, of denial by their doctors, of an inability to come off safely. And I wanted to try and help. The first thing I did was to set up a group of of medics and researchers and doctors who are all equally concerned uh, in this area, and that's called the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry. Uh, And together we, we created summaries of the research so that people could actually take this information to their doctors and have a proper discussion about withdrawal, about the impacts of these drugs, about um, some of the problems with diagnosis and the psychiatric system more generally. And um, we have since then set up an all-party parliamentary group called the APPG for Prescribed Drug Dependence. That was chaired by Oliver Letwin for a long time, and he and I work closely together, we managed to get the government to produce a big review called the the 2019 PHE Review of Prescribed Drug Withdrawal. And that review has set in motion several things. It's set in motion changes to NICE clinical guidance. I was on the guideline committee looking at safe prescribing and withdrawal. So we now have new rules that mean that doctors, when they initiate treatment with these drugs, They have to pause. They shouldn't do it at the first meeting. They have to come up with a written management plan so that the risks have been identified, discussed, the duration of treatment, the dose, all these things are written out so that a patient truly understands what they're getting into. And um, it then also has information on withdrawal and tapering, that tapering should be done slowly, that it needs to be done at a proportional rate, um, i.e. a a reduction from the previous rate And that's been great news, but we are still lobbying hard to get two other things in place. The first is a national 24-hour helpline. We have one for illicit drugs and alcohol. It's a scandal that we don't have one for prescribed medication. And then, of course, we need local services so that people who get into problems have somewhere to go to where there's expertise and support to help them to come off. And are GPs now doing this? Are they enacting what you've just put into place? 
Well, a lot of this is relatively recent. I'd like to think that GPs are starting to do that. There's certainly much greater awareness. Alongside the campaigning work, we've also had a lot of coverage um, in the media, in particular the Daily Mail has been running campaigns to support people who've become dependent on prescribed drugs. The Times ran, ran a campaign. Um, there, there's also a lot of publications, doctors' publications like Pulse and so forth that have covered this area. So I think awareness is much greater, both in the general public and also with doctors. Are they actually sticking to the letter of the new NICE guideline? I suspect most of them are not yet. But over time, I think we will see change. Um, that is really a wonderful thing that you're doing. And I believe Professor John Reed is part of the council. For, is that right? John, John indeed, is, is a good friend and colleague. And, uh, and John and, and Dr. James Davis, who was my co-founder with the council, um, they both produced this um, extraordinarily important piece of research looking at the prevalence of antidepressant withdrawal. Because before that piece of research, um, the, most of the medical establishment were just denying that this was a problem. And they identified that 50% of people on these drugs will experience withdrawal. Yes, we, we spoke with him about that. So how can people and also very much GPs and psychiatrists um, find out about the Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry? What's the URL? So it's cepuk.org. And it has information on us, but it also has a lot of information that provides support to people who are going through this nightmare. So encouraging videos and case studies of people who've got through, how they got through, as well as advice from experts and withdrawal advisors. There's, there's a lot on there that should be helpful. So, Luke, thank you very much for rising to the challenge and helping literally thousands of others in so doing. And thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you, Patrick. Lovely to see you. So we've learned how harmful antidepressants can be, but not really learned how to come off them. So now let's speak with psychiatrist Dr. Hyla Cass, a retired associate professor from UCLA, on how she helps people get off antidepressants using an optimum nutrition approach. She first sort of turned me on to this through her book, Supplement Your Prescription, which really was the first to show how prescribed drugs, including psychiatric drugs, deplete nutrients and how to correct for this. So, Hyla, welcome back to my podcast. It's such a pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for inviting me. Now, how common is it that people consult you to get off antidepressants and why do they stop working? Well, this is so interesting. People want to get off antidepressants for many reasons. First of all, they have what they refer to as chemical brain. They can't think straight. Um, there's sexual side effects. Um, some people get more depressed. Some people become suicidal on antidepressants. And for the most part, they simply stop working after a while. So people have good reason to want to come off them. However, the vast majority of psychiatrists will say things like, you need to be on it for life. It's like you, you have a chemical imbalance. It's like insulin for a diabetic. You know, just live with it. That is so untrue. That is just... And I, just to clarify, we spoke earlier to Professor John Reed, who is a psychologist, and you are a medical doctor, a psychiatrist. What's the difference? The difference is that I have a full medical training. I, I did a full 
program of medical school, graduated, did an internship, then did a residency in psychiatry, which was uh, an additional four years because I also did child and family. So I have a really good perspective on all the physical aspects that, um, and, and I got all the psychological information in my psych residency, but I think it's been very valuable that I've had the medical education. Now you're unusual in that you understand all this um, so well, not having medical training, whereas 99.9% .9 of physicians have not a clue of the connection between the body and the brain. And it, it goes beyond um, just neurotransmitters, but everything in the body affects the brain and the brain affects the body. And when somebody presents with depression, we have to look at many different factors. And I think you're quite familiar with that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of my next question, because here we've been hearing all about these terrible withdrawal effects, um, but nothing about the mechanism. What is the mechanism? Why do the drugs stop working and why do people have these terrible withdrawal effects? What's what's actually going on in the brain and body? Well, for example, the, the most common uh, treatment is the use of antidepressants. And with an antidepressant, with particularly SSRIs, ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they are fooling the brain into thinking that there is more serotonin kicking around between the cells to have an impact. The fact is, it's really just fooling the brain. And we know we can't really fool Mother Nature for very long. So what happens is, you don't have these people were already low in serotonin then they become more depleted because they're not getting any source of it and the drug just stops working because there's there's no precursor to help the, there's no raw materials there to make more serotonin so, so what, what you're saying is that the drug is depleting serotonin the very thing that was apparently uh you know there for the drug to to cure it, it blocks the reuptake channel it blocks the recycling channel so the longer you're on the drug the more depleted you become is that what you're right. saying exactly so you actually become worse and then when you try to get off the drug what has already happened is the the drug has Let's, has had some impact on your whole neurotransmitter system. It has caused some disturbance in that whole system, which was work, has a very is very fine-tuned and works perfectly when it's treated perfectly. But when you start messing with it with these chemicals, you create havoc and then you withdraw from the medication and the brain's already used to having it and it causes worse perturbation and a perturbed brain has a lot of symptoms anxiety depression insomnia of uh, suicidal thinking it, it sounds uh, so like addiction i mean i know we're meant to use the word cessation here <laughs> or withdrawal it effect is addiction. 
Of course it is. That's exactly what it is. Your brain becomes addicted to it. And here you are on something that you're not benefiting from. They will add, the doctors will add another drug or increase your dosage. And you're on this treadmill that you can't get off and you're still not feeling better. I mean, it's extraordinary because it's not so long ago when heroin or, or, you know, opium and cocaine were top-selling medical drugs. And we have a situation here in the UK uh, where 8 million people currently are on antidepressants and 4 million of those have withdrawal effects if they try to stop. So in other words, we're still in a situation where people, where the system allows it to be legal to give something that ultimately makes you addicted. And when you try to come off it, you feel lousy. So you keep taking the substance. There you go. (laughs) There you go. So the question is, what's your strategy? What works? If I'm suffering, what are you going to tell me to do or or, uh, take? um, And should I reduce the antidepressant very slowly? What's the strategy? Well, the usual strategy when someone is being withdrawn is that you do it very gradually. But you're still at risk at the risk of having withdrawal effects. But we have some good news here. And that is, which you know, of course, that we have the best pharmacy inside us, that if we provide the raw materials to make our chemical messengers, that is serotonin, dopamine, GABA, acetylcholine, if we provide the raw materials, it's going to create the neurotransmitters that we need working at the right place at the right time. And you have a much bigger advantage than when you're doing a chemical, you know, putting a chemical bandaid on, just putting a damper on the symptoms and in fact, causing addiction in the process. So what would you give me? Let's say I'm really feeling incredibly anxious uh, John Reed mentioned these brain zaps, and uh, I'm actually getting more depressed, but I really want to get off this medication. Um, are you going to give me supplements? What are you going to tell me to eat? First of all, we're going to clean up your diet. Take away, and, and this is difficult for people to do, I think, because they're often consuming a lot of sugar to make them feel good, to bring their blood sugar up, because when your blood sugar goes up, you do feel better for a little bit, and then it dips down again. So you're on a sugar roller coaster, a carb roller coaster. So what happens is what the ideally you have good nutrition, eating regularly, organically, uh, taking away all the chemicals and additives and things that are making you toxic. Uh, Organic food, things that are have vitamins and minerals in them that help to replete what you're missing. And then on top of that, that that's the, the start. Then you provide the raw materials, as I was saying, to make neurotransmitters. It's like baking a cake. You have to have all the ingredients or it's not going to turn out well, right? Mm-hmm. So we give things like B vitamins, uh, magnesium, uh, the actual amino acid substrate, for example, with... for Making serotonin, we want to have 5-HTP or tryptophan. They're a little different. They're along the same line of tryptophan breaks down to serotonin, to 5-HTP, which breaks down to serotonin. 
but it's it's better. Uh, I shouldn't say better. It's 5-HTP is a lot stronger than tryptophan. So, and it crosses the blood-brain barrier. That is, it gets into the brain more readily. On the other hand, I've had people for whom having that 5-HTP cross the blood-brain barrier so readily can actually cause anxiety, particularly if they have high cortisol. So you don't have to know all those details. Uh, I just know that I will often be cautious and start somebody on tryptophan rather than 5-HTP because it requires a bit of carb to get over the blood-brain barrier. And what, so, what sort of amount? What sort of amount of tryptophan, 5-HTP? What's the kind of range we're talking about? Well, 50 of 5-HTP is like 500 of tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't tell because you, you're going to be ingesting the same size of capsule, but they have a, a variation in the dosage. So, yeah, I mean, I usually start at 100 and I know, uh, milligrams of 5-HTP. I know the studies. And so do I. Yeah, and the studies tend to show 300 milligram. And then we were always told it's kind of the caution that don't give 5-HTP to somebody on an antidepressant. The idea is the antidepressant stops you, you know, recycling, stops you breaking down serotonin, and the 5-HTP helps you to make more. And the theory is if you put the two together, you might end up with way too much serotonin, which is called serotonin syndrome. But you know, in the in the probably 15 years that I've been using 5-HTP, I've never seen serotonin syndrome. Have you? I have not. Uh, I do. I, I'm often teaching about this. There's so few of us anywhere. I'm in the U.S., but uh, so few of us anywhere in the whole world that are doing this, you know, giving. And I, I bless you for for providing this and teaching people about it because we need we need much much more of it so um and now i forget the question well it's okay but there was a recent report which actually a farm a pharmacology report uh, which looked at all the evidence and it was in fact recommending um, pharma companies to add 5-hdp into the antidepressant to make the antidepressant more effective absolutely and they, and, they, <laughs> uh, and so you know uh, there are things we perhaps shouldn't always say on air but there's a lot of logic i would have thought to phasing out the antidepressants and phasing in 5-htp do you do that i do i will start first of all i begin by giving all the precursors change the diet clean up the diet Add in the cofactors, often a good multivitamin will do that, plus some fish oil. Then I'll add in the precursor. In this case, it'll be 5-HTP, or if people are more sensitive, L-tryptophan. And gradually, as we take away the antidepressant dose, we add in more of the precursor, which is generally 5-HTP. And... That will really mitigate the side effects, the withdrawal effects. It's pretty amazing. You know, when you give the body what it needs, it responds just beautifully. And we, we this needs to be taught in medical school. It needs to be taught in psychiatric residencies. And hopefully we're making some inroads. It's now, really basic information. 
Now, a lot of people are being advised now to switch to the new generation of antidepressants, that is switch away from the serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs, SSRIs. This is your you know, Prozac generation, fluoxetine, Xeroxat, and so on, onto the new generation, which are called serotonin and noradrenaline or norepinephrine in America, reuptake inhibitors. So not just the serotonin pathway, but the noradrenaline or norepinephrine pathway. Are they any better? And what are their withdrawal effects like? And should we treat them in a slightly different way? Well, as you said, they sort of serve are supposed to serve double duty of increasing more than one neurotransmitter. However, they don't really work that way. People have a lot of side effects from them and getting off them can be really, really challenging. Uh, I've had people come to me who were suicidal because they had tried to get off of venlafaxine or Effexor on the, by themselves, which is really unsafe. See, the, the whole thing is it's, it is really, unsafe. first of all, very unsafe to go off cold turkey. And also just tapering the medication can be quite disturbing because you get all these side effects. But adding in these precursors is just amazing. You give the raw materials and your brain starts to replace the neurotransmitter that's missing. So you, let's say you've been on an SSRI and uh, an SNRI. If we add in the raw materials of 5-HTP with an SNRI, I would also add in a dopamine precursor like tyrosine, then you're, you start to make those. And dopamine and noradrenaline or norepinephrine in the US and adrenaline, they're like a sort of trio, aren't they? And that's what this drug is affecting. And tyrosine is the precursor for both dopamine and noradrenaline or epinephrine and adrenaline if you need it. And also thyroxine. Um, do you find a lot of people in this situation also having thyroid issues? Uh -huh. Well, what's interesting is that so many people who present with fatigue, depression, can't get their act together, can't get up in the morning, are labeled depressed and they're given an antidepressant when in fact the doctor should have tested their thyroid and discovered that they were hypothyroid. And what they really needed was something to boost their thyroid. It could be, again, precursors that help make thyroid hormone or actual thyroid uh, replacement therapy as well. Yes, we've sort of heard about omega-3, B vitamins, getting a good diet, balancing your blood sugar, getting enough uh, omega-3, eating fish uh, supplements, and then targeting the specific neurotransmitter system uh, that is depleted. And it's the thing that really interests me. I mean, on the one hand, I love what Professor John Reed said, you know, what's the cause of depression? And he said, well, depressing things, you know, which is which is great. But the thing that I think is different here, and it reminds me very much uh, of the work in the field of addiction, is there may be psychosocial issues to get you into a process of addiction, or in this case, into taking an antidepressant. And even if those situations have gone away, what hasn't been corrected is the underlying brain imbalance. And just eating a well-balanced diet and tapering off the antidepressant 
has always felt to me like not addressing the fact that you're now dealing with someone whose brain chemistry has been really altered by several years on antidepressants. Yeah, well, what's interesting too is these people are medicated and they need to, that they aren't able to really process their issues. So as they come off the medication and on the um, nutrients that they need to make the right neurotransmitters and feel better, then they can begin tackling their traumatic memories, for example. There's a lot of PTSD that's underlying depression and anxiety, but you're not going to be able to deal with it unless you have a functioning brain and the brain functions on neurotransmitters. So are you implying that to some extent antidepressants can kind of numb you so you don't actually deal with the issues and when you come off them, those issues you know, come back to the surface? They do and you're better able to cope with them. Mm -hmm. But I, I remember so clearly years ago, a woman said she had been on an antidepressant, was at her mother's funeral and was unable to cry and felt really felt guilty, felt bad, felt frustrated. And what it was, was that the SSRI was actually preventing her emotions from surfacing, which is scary. And once she, we ha got her off the medication and feeling better on the supplements, she was actually able to address her, her grief. And it wasn't like it was overwhelming her. It was like, oh, I can finally feel the grief and process it. And it was a very rich experience. And people need to be able to process their their grief, their traumas, their, all their emotions. You know, if you can't feel uh, the sadness, which is what antidepressants do, you also can't feel joy. There's kind of a flat effect. And that's not living. So... Now yeah, it, it's 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 so important because I mean I recommend anyone if you know anyone who's going on an antidepressant monitor them for the first month because we know that there's a significant but small percentage who react badly, and um, so I guess we should be doing exactly the same. If you know someone who's trying to come off antidepressants and tapering, should we sort of keep a very watchful eye? Is there an increased risk, for example, of of self harm? That's possible. There's a bigger risk of self-harm in coming on them, but mm -hmm. certainly coming off them. Any change in medication changes your neurotransmitter balance. And when that happens, things are up for grabs. Mm -hmm. You don't know what can happen. So yes, monitor them carefully. Now in the UK, doctors are advised to stop prescribing so many antidepressants and deal with the actual causes of depression. But every year, the numbers of prescriptions just go up and up. What's happening in the US? The same. People have a, like a 15 minute visit and they get their medication renewed. And it's really sad. I mean, a, a young person, for example, a college student will go into the student health and be having some adjustment problems. They're away from home for the first time, be put on an antidepressant immediately rather than having counseling, rather than talking about how they can adjust better to their new situation. And 
they become hooked and it's very difficult to get off them once you're on them. That's what our whole discussion here is about. But what we're both doing here is offering hope about getting off of antidepressants. And what I really would like the message to be is don't go on them in the first place. If you're offered an antidepressant, you can politely decline and find a way of dealing with it more physiologically. It's of course, your psychotherapy, but also find a practitioner who will work with your chemistry. Now, I heard that this that in the U.S., most states have an increase in the rate of depression or the instance of depression. But the states that had legalized cannabis, some of them actually had the reverse. They were doing better. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's it's exactly statistically. I can't quote the exact statistic, but that there was a clear decrease in prescriptions when cannabis was legalized. So that's a, that's an interesting point, and a lot of veterans discovered that when they came back from war, they had they were had post-traumatic stress disorder, couldn't sleep, had anxiety, depression, and so on, and found that uh, that cannabis actually helped enormously. Now, so, I know in, in the time that I've known you, you've always been on the cutting edge of new approaches, and recently very interested in uh, CBD and the research on CBD. So do you use that? Does that help people in the process of coming off antidepressants? Is it also good for depression itself? What can you tell us about CBD? Uh, thanks for asking, because I am not an expert on cannabis in general. I am an expert on CBD. And CBD is, cannabidiol is from the cannabis plant, but it's the uh, cannab it's uh, the cannabinoid that doesn't get you high. THC is the one that gets you high. But what this does is it helps balance what's called the endocannabinoid system. It's a system that goes throughout the whole body that's there to help us um, rest, relax, digest, and it's protective. And CBD actually works on all of the neurotransmitters in a very positive way. CBD acts as a reuptake inhibitor. So it prevents the breakdown of serotonin, GABA, dopamine, acetylcholine, and, and also anandamide. So it actually has built in the ability to make us feel calm, focused, all the things we're trying to do when we're adding in the precursors. And the real, really interesting thing is that it knows which ones to raise at what time. You know, we can give precursors, but there has to be a mechanism for utilizing them. And if you need more serotonin action, then you'll get that. Let's say it's, it's bedtime. So CBD will actually help to raise, preferentially raise serotonin at bedtime to help you to sleep and so on. So it's quite a wonderful addition to our armamentarium. And it actually induces positive changes in the brain. Just, you know, it's so, it's interesting how antidepressants cause negative changes in the brain, whereas repeated CBD use actually enhances the brain and helps build more connections. 
And it's been used in so many different psychiatric conditions. And certainly I have used it in my own practice for anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's research on all of this. So, and it's shown to be neuroprotective, anti-inflammatory, and it's also not addictive. So we have a really excellent intervention here. Are you using it in most of your patients who are coming off antidepressants or are depressed in the first place? Yes, because it it will help. Everything that I'm doing is helped by the CBD. And it's quite confusing when you go into a health food store. There are all these, it's usually an oil, uh, you know, where there's always an oil as far as I know. But it's hard to know how much. The, the dosage seems to be reported in different ways. I know. I know. I, I, it took me a long time to figure it out. But the it's kind of silly, but CBD always says how much is in the whole bottle. And then you have to know how many milliliters are in a dropper mm-hmm. and divide it. But also the label will often say what is in it, you know, how many milligrams of cbd is in each dropper full so that's you you need to read the small print on the label and how much are we shooting for what's the kind of range in terms of milligrams or milliliters well it's very very dependent on the individual you know what we're doing is personalized medicine based on everyone's biochemical individuality and you don't know how much CBD is needed. It's really going to depend on how healthy that person's endocannabinoid system is. You know, people, by the way, people that are low in their endocannabinoid system, and that can come from stress, it can be genetic, whatever it is, when they are low, they're going to be more susceptible to post-traumatic stress disorder, to depression, to anxiety, to PMS, all the things that we're using CBD to treat is actually because they're actually low in their endocannabinoid system. So the dose can be anything from a half a dropper of something that says 500 milligrams per bottle up to a whole dropper of what's uh, in a 3000 milligram per bottle. And what sort of, how do we, what's this sort of milligram range, you know? Milligram range can anywhere from 10 milligrams to 200 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Now the 200 milligrams is kind of a lot, but sometimes when people are withdrawing from medication, they need that. Or if they have serious post-traumatic stress disorder, they need it. And then you taper down and you don't have to, there's no withdrawal with CBD and there's no addiction and no tolerance. So it's not um, but like using like tapering off an antidepressant. So the dose range, as I said, I've given some people one dropper of the 750 milligram, and that is 25 milligrams, or uh, a dropper full of the bottle that says 1500 milligrams, and they're going to get 50, five zero milligrams in a dropper, or in the 3000 milligram bottle, these are one ounce bottles. In the 3000 milligram, you get 100 milligrams for each dropper full. So there, that's the range. It's quite quite a big range. And the good news is you can't OD on it. 
Now, how many I, years? How many years have you been uh, helping people uh, with this kind of more nutritional medicine type psychiatry? Would you say? Probably twenty years, twenty-five years. At, at this point, it's it's um, yeah, just a long time. And during that time, because this is important, you know, we've heard about the dangers of antidepressants when you go on them uh, and when you come off them. And uh, what about uh, dangers? We've heard about B vitamins, omega-3, the precursor amino acids, now CBD. Have you ever had a patient that has got worse or had any significant reaction? Can't say I have. You know, I would never say never. Because mm -hmm. everyone is so different, but I I haven't experienced any any problems with doing this natural approach. The body knows what it needs and eliminates what it doesn't need. Now, to sort of contextualize that in terms of medical risk, how much do you have to pay a year um, for your medical psychiatric insurance? Oh my, um, mine is actually low. For, um, for North America, it's, or I shouldn't say North America, I just said the U.S., I'm paying $3,000 a year for part-time practice. Okay. So I'm paying £45 uh, for a £2 million cover as a nutritional therapist. And recently, uh, some new legislation made it have to be disclosed as to how much of that was the actual insurance. And it was half of it. The rest was admin and, and profit. So, so the danger of my kind of medicine, which of course I know is your kind of medicine, is uh, 25 pounds a year. And the danger of conventional medicine, if you're practicing part-time, and you say that this, you're paying less than most, is $3,000 a year. It kind of puts the whole safety issue into context, I think. How about that? <laughs> well, Dr. Heilekast, we come to the end of our podcast. I, I want to thank uh, Professor John Reed for really explaining and exposing what is a tragedy, and that is people being put on antidepressants without really exploring anything about the true underlying causes of depression. And to thank Luke uh, Montague for uh, not only dealing with his own situation, but now through his actions and political actions, helping many. And I want to thank you, Dr. Hyla Cass, for showing us how you can get off antidepressants more safely using the support of nutritional medicine and also, you know, very good psychological support and getting to the issue of what causes depression in the first place. So thank you very much for being on my podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And my website is CassMD.com. So that's CassMD.com. Uh, Hilo has written some fantastic books, so do go and have a look. And uh, I wish you all the very best of health and happiness.